0: This Women's Agenda podcast series, The Leadership Lessons, is supported by Salesforce. Changing the conversation around what's possible for young Indigenous people in Australia today is an ongoing process, and it's one that requires leadership and dedication to create change. I'm Kate Mills, the host of Women's Gender's podcast series, The Leadership Lessons, supported by Salesforce. In this episode, I'm joined by proud Wiradjuri woman, Leela Smith, who's the Chief Executive Officer at Arara Education Foundation, a not-for-profit organisation helping young Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander to fulfil their education aspirations and reach their potential. Leila, with her vast career experience across education, health and public policy, is paving the way for young people to dream big and design their own future. So Leila, thanks very much for joining us today. Now, let's set the scene. You are the CEO of the Aurora Foundation. So tell me a little bit about that and what it does.
1: So the the scope of work that we do across the uh, Indigenous education uh, spectrum is is so broad that it's probably worth describing through the eyes of Indigenous students themselves. So um, I'll start with an example of a year eight Aboriginal boy living in Western Sydney. He's wondering if if, if school is really for him and if he really belongs there and if it's his thing. Then he comes on our high school program, he enrolls in our program. And in his uh, April school holidays, he goes on an academic enrichment camp for five days where he's surrounded with Aboriginal mentors, who have experience of higher education, Aboriginal elders and um, and a curriculum as well. And he has a chat to some of those mentors and, and they kind of say to him, look, mate, I was just like you. You know, I was wondering if school is really for me. Um, this is what I had going on. This is how I got through it. And now I'm, I'm a final year um, student at university and I'm going to be a teacher next year. And he gets to hang out with those mentors in the July and the October holidays all throughout year eight. Year 9, Year 10, 11, 12, and one year out of Year 12 as well. The power of that contact for that student in what, what they're navigating is so important. And we do that through academic enrichment camps at, at the Aurora Education Foundation. There might be an Aboriginal girl in Broome High School and, and, and she's um, she, her dream is to, to get a job in town as a hairdresser. And we run outreach sessions across the country where we can put another Aboriginal woman um, in the classroom running a workshop with students. And that Aboriginal woman can say to that girl, sure, you can be a hairdresser in town. Have you thought about owning your own business? This is how I went to to get to where I am today. And this was my journey. I reckon you can do it too. We do that through outreach sessions as well. And finally, um, you could be an Aboriginal university student right now. 19,000 Aboriginal university students through Australia. You could be nailing it could be getting distinctions and high distinctions, and you could be wondering, what's next for me? Like, what do I do with this success? We run an international study tour that takes Indigenous students to six of the top 10 universities around the world, uh, places like Stanford, LSE, Oxford, Cambridge, Harvard. And we show them that if you want this, you can study here. And we also administer scholarships, the Charlie Perkins and the Roberta Sykes to help you study there. And and the results of that is um, we get uh, year 12, we increase year 12 retention rates, we increase transitions to universities for Indigenous students. We also increase the number of Aboriginal scholars studying at top tier universities across the world. And before 2010, no Indigenous student had studied full time at Oxford or Cambridge. And since we launched the, um, the Charlie Perkins scholarships, which we administer, and the Roberta Sykes scholarships, which we also administer, We've got just under 50 Aboriginal students who've studied at Oxford, Cambridge and Harvard. And you connect them with that that year eight boy I was talking about before, and that girl the high school, Aboriginal girl in high school in Broome. And the power of that is so remarkable with that cycle. And that's everything that we stand for at Aurora.
0: Mm, That sounds amazing. You were one of those students, weren't you, that went on that international study tour? Um, Talk me through a little bit about that and your own experience of education.
1: My experience of education was I did go on that international study tour in uh, 2012 and uh, I think it was only the second or the third year that we'd run it and um, I was working in Aboriginal health at the time and it was um, by coincidence that I was at an award ceremony for a bunch of Aboriginal scholars who were getting that scholarship to go to Oxford and Cambridge. My boss was actually invited to go to it and he couldn't make it and he said can you go in my place and I saw three Aboriginal scholars um, on the stage about to embark on this journey overseas. And they they were just like me, just like that year out boy, just like that girl in Broome. When you can see Aboriginal people before you who've walked that, that path was so powerful. Um, And that's what inspired me to apply apply to go to that uh, international study tour. And just like that university student I talked about, I had first class honours. Um, I had no idea what to do with that, though. I had no idea what that might mean for me and my career. And when I went on that study tour and I met the head of the Masters of Public Policy course at Cambridge um, and told him a bit about myself and he said, you'd be a perfect candidate for our course, that was life-changing. That validation of being able to hear it firsthand completely changed um, me and my kind of perception. Um, And to give you a bit of background about what high school was like for me. Um, right up until year 12, I went, I got straight A's. Um, but nobody really cared. <laughs> um, they had a whole bunch of other Aboriginal students at the school with me. And um, when they would get us together as a group of students, it was always about, you know, culture or well-being or making sure we weren't wagging and making sure we were turning up. There was never any discussion about. How we were doing academically or what our career goals were. Um, I remember being in uh, advanced maths at school and getting kept getting put down the class despite getting A's, and none of my non-indigenous friends who were getting similar grades got put down. It was it was it was just me that kept going down a level. And I remember I I did Italian and I loved it. I actually did Italian all the way up until uni, um, and at uni as well. And I got straight A's through through Italian as well, except for one day when I got a D and it said on my report next to the D grade, Leela doesn't submit assignments and doesn't turn up to class. And I realised that she'd had me confused with the other Aboriginal girl in the class. How did that make you feel? You know what? I mean, I think about that now. I actually did nothing about it. No one did anything about it. I just accepted it. And what I did about it was I just stopped trying and I went from getting straight A's to straight C's. Um, and and I, I, I believe that I, I could have probably gotten into university through a direct entry pathway with a higher ATAR score, but when I realised no one really cares and no one really expects you to, I didn't know how, how to be outraged about that and I didn't know what rectifying that as a teenager even looked like. So, um, yeah, it was a pretty remarkable time when I got to university through an alternative entry scheme and and that was a complete accident that I found out about that.
0: How did you find out about it?
1: Oh, I was at a a meeting with some other Aboriginal students and parents at the school and um, one of the parents said to me, what do you want to do next year? And I said, well, you know, I'm thinking about university, but I don't really know if it's for me or if my grades are gonna be good enough. And he said, well, I'm the head of the Aboriginal Centre at Australian National University. Here's my card, give me a call. I'll take you around the campus and we'll talk about alternative entry schemes. Um, That that was why I ended up there. I had never been on a university campus before. Um, I had no idea what alternative schemes were and what they looked like um, and how to access them. And when I got there at that Aboriginal Centre, saw a space where you could be completely proud and celebrate who you were as an Aboriginal student and also be academic at the same time. And I truly believe that that was the game changer for me that enabled me to graduate with first class honours. And what we do at Aurora is bring those those two worlds into high school. Like we shouldn't wait until we get to universities for those two worlds to come together.
0: Mm -hmm. There's something you've said there, Leila, that you've repeated that I I just want to to talk about a little bit. You talked about the the young Aboriginal boy who's uh, in high school and he goes, he's not sure if university was for him. And then you talked about your experience where you were having that conversation um, and you said, I don't know if it's for me. What's happening there, do you think? Why are Indigenous students coming through high school? And, you know, do you know what I mean? Not feeling that tertiary education is for them.
1: You know, you got to wonder where people get those ideas from as well. Um, And we hear that a lot. You know, one of my one of my favourite examples of that is this um, Aboriginal student who grew up in Logan, in outside Brisbane, and um, he was he was really smart. And he said to his dad, "You know, how come no one in our family has been to university before?" And his dad said, "Because blackfellas don't go to university, son." And he went on to be the first in his family to to go to university. And graduated top of his class and he's now a Rhodes Scholar teaching law at Oxford University this is this is real real perceptions that people have to push back against and I've heard it as well from teachers last year I was in um, WA at a regional school there and I was talking to a deputy principal about the work we do in high schools and we had space for another partner school and I said you know this is what we do, do you want to sign up and be a partner? And she said, oh, look, it sounds awesome, but ah, can I ask a quick question? Um, none of our Aboriginal students want to go to university. Do you still want to come to our school? And I said, well, well, come on now, you know, who knows whether they want to go to university in Year 7 anyway? Of course, no, it's, it's, it's fine. And two months later, we got a string of applications from Year 7 students in that very school And one of them was a boy who said, to the question we asked, um, tell us a bit about yourself. He said, "Um, I guess I'm just an engineering kind of guy. And we said, "Oh, okay, what inspires you? And he said, anybody who's an architect. Two months earlier, his deputy principal had said, do you still want to come to this school because no students want to go to university? So, I mean, to to answer your question, where do we get that idea from? It's, it's like this ingrained um, narrative and expectations that can sometimes be internalised and it's bloody awesome when they're not internalised and we should celebrate that every time that happens um, but too often they are internalised um, to students and families and, um, and uh, it's just not accurate. Mm, yeah, I mean,
0: I grew up in an area like that, you know, and I remember going to school and most people didn't think they were going to go to university. And, and a lot of them were going to be, the if they did go, were going to be the first in their family ever to go to university. And it's interesting just the expectations that were built up, you know, around, you know, what they would do with their lives. Um, so look, you, you're doing really wonderful work. And it's really inspiring to hear you talk. Outside of the Aurora Foundation, if we just look more broadly at the outcomes for Indigenous students t- today, where is the system working, do you think? And where does it let us down?
1: I like the premise of the question that it, there are areas where it's working and there are, que- there are areas where it's letting us down because I think that's accurate, it is a mi- mixed bag. Um, I mean, I talked before about the 19,000 Aboriginal students who are currently studying at universities across Australia I think that is a really good sign. Um, the numbers of Aboriginal PhD candidates and master's students are going up every year. Um, that is very exciting because if you're an Aboriginal student with a tertiary qualification, your employment outcomes are the same as if you were a non-Indigenous student with a tertiary, applica- uh, a tertiary qualification. So that is that is incredibly important that we that we look at those um, markers. Um, in saying that, though, uh, we I mean, TAFE is the same. We have lots of Aboriginal students um, at, at TAFEs and, and, and CITs and, and, and vocational education around the country as well. I mean, 30,000 in New South Wales alone in TAFE. Um, I think what we need in terms of the system and what success looks like around that is better retention rates. I think the enrolment rates are good, but we need to look at where are we losing students and why. Um Particularly first year university students, um, Indigenous students have a, about a fifty percent uh, rate of um, of dropping out. And, and what's what's happening there? Do you think? Mm, I think I think a lot of it is because of um, uh, I think there's a few things. First of all, I would look at what are the core skills and competencies that students are equipped with as they come into university. I mean, do we have that those kind of core. Um, structured writing, um, analytic skills that that help to jump through those hoops of the university. Um, and I think that can often be uh, addressed through things like bridging courses um, and, and, you know, not to mention um, high school as well has an important role in that too. Um, I think as well there's certainly um, a factor around access to scholarships. There, are, We have a, a scholarships portal at Aurora with over 900 scholarships that can be um, uh, matched to Indigenous students. The fact is a lot of those scholarships go una- unawarded because um, they're either for second or third year students because the scholarships um, wanna see if the student's gonna get through the first year first. So that becomes a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy in a way, or, or they're, um, they're so specific, you know, they'll be for a woman from in this age group in this particular region who's doing um, a bit of research about this particular issue. Um, And so they're very, very tight um, in terms of the the scope of which they want to cover. And finally, there's actually the role of the institutions and the staff within universities to value and reflect their students, including Aboriginal students as well. Um, Aboriginal students need to see themselves um, just like any student should in, in what they're learning about. Um, and and, and in their teachers, and in in the values of the institution as well. And I think we find institutions who do that well, universities who do that well, have better retention rates as well.
0: Mm. And and, I mean, that speaks to your experience as well of getting to university and finding, um, you know, a a centre essentially where you could, you you know, you could be recognised. Just looking kind of a bit more broader, if you like, in terms of uh, I- indigenous affairs. I-, I wanted to get your opinion on the, the essentially the government response, if you like, the close the gap initiative. W- what's your view on the close the gap initiative, and how does it? How do you think it's working within education?
1: Um, yeah, two really important things to unpack there. I'll I'll do the first one around the close the gap initiative. Um, this is there's actually a really important and under um, a- acknowledged history to that campaign, which is that Close the Gap actually started in the in the non-government sector led by a coalition of Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal organisations who said, we need to do something about this. Let's talk about, about Close the Gap. And it became so popular and so tangible as, as as a campaign of getting people on board with this idea of closing the gap that then... The Commonwealth and state governments jumped on board and called it closing the gap, and and, and kind of adopted that narrative that was getting such a groundswell from these community organisations, and then attached funding to it um, with with um, coalition of government uh, funding reforms and 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 targets and um, kind of jumped on board of this this brand that was so well accepted. In, in communities, and added an "ing" on the end of close the gap, um, and that if that had led to good outcomes and, and, and sustainable funding and values and, and initiatives that were valued, that that would be something that would be great and a really nice story of of community support that that was leading to um, to change at a systemic level. But what we're seeing this year is um, actually it feels like. Governments are stepping away from closing the gap. Um, for the first time ever, the prime minister has not presented the close the gap, closing the gap report to parliament this year. Um, and, and no one has, has said, um, who's going to present the next one either. They have not promised that they're going to continue to do that. Matt, um, I think there's something so symbolic about a prime minister presenting a report to parliament and and it shows that they see this issue as important and you know perhaps they could have something where the the minister for indigenous affairs also does a complementary piece as well i worry that when close the gap was um the bee's knees that the government was ready to jump on board and i love the idea of targets i love the idea with targets and plans and funding but i am worried that for the first time I, that maybe it's not, it's losing its shine and it's seen as all too hard. Um, I would love to see a bit more of a banging of the drums and an excitement about close the, closing the gap again, like there was ten years ago, because we're going to need that momentum to make change. And I'm, and I, I'm not feeling it this year in the way that we were when it started. Um, And and, and certainly around education, we need that momentum because the education sector has such a long way to go. Um, We we really need to um, look at the the completion rates um, in high schools in particular. And to do that, we need to overcome a highly fragmented sector of Catholic independent public schools that are different across states. For us to to, for us to overcome that segmentation, we need collaboration and targets and momentum and, and, and a drive. Um, I really hope that we, we've got the, the foundation for that um, and I really hope that we start to put some flesh on those bones because we need it going forward.
0: Mm. Yeah, it looks so true. I mean, in the end, if you don't get the data and the targets, it's really difficult to know where the problem is, you know, and how to address the problem. Um, you are the CEO of the Aurora Foundation. Um, so tell me a little bit about your leadership style.
1: It's funny when I was uh, when I was at Cambridge in the masters course, we were a bunch we were all quite close in the course. There was about thirty or forty of us, and we were all at the pub one day, um, and we were talking about that time when we had a panic attack, and I think I was the only one in the class that had not had a panic attack, and you know it's probably not surprising. I mean, when you think about these pressure cooker environments and the type of people that are in them for whatever reason, um, you can see how the overlay with, with, um, periods of anxiety completely correlate there. Um, but I kind of, I'm, I don't get that as much because I'm not a perfectionist and I see that. I actually see that as a strength. Um, I am very good at judging what can wait and being okay with not being able to do everything at once and being okay with not excelling in every single area and being a bit of an all-rounder when I need to be and knowing when to deep dive when I can too. And there have been times when I've seen that as um, mediocre, but I actually I actually think that is an incredible gift now that I've reached um, the CEO role because if you are a perfectionist, um, that's when you can burn out. and that's when panic attacks and anxiety and, and stress. Can it eat you up from inside? Um, so, yeah, I, I actually celebrate that now and, and, and think that that's a great thing, that I'm not a perfectionist and that if I get it wrong, it's okay, because I never, I never thought I would get it 100% right to begin with. Mm-hmm.
0: You know, it's interesting you say that. So I, I, I'm I'm a CEO. I'm a CEO of a charity called Property Industry Foundation. And, you know, we're busy. And I remember somebody saying to me once, they say, how do you cope? And I said, well, to be honest with you, I'm really in the moment all the time. So I said, if I actually took my head up and I stopped and I looked around me at everything that was coming at us, I'd probably panic. But because I'm very focused at what's happening right here, right now, you know, I, I, I don't feel too bad. So it's just interesting the different uh, uh, ways that people have of coping with the stress that come comes with those kind of roles.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely, it's true. I mean, you do have those moments where you, you helicopter above where you are, um, and uh, and it's it can be a bit scary. <laughs> I don't like to stay up that level too much either, because um, you do start wondering how how is this even possible to be covering all of this, and I think that's when you get to the point where you say. It's because it's not possible to cover this, quite frankly. Um, And you do, you throw, you just, you focus on one thing at once and, and move on to the next and just get better at judging when to put things down and when to pick them up, I think.
0: Mm, that's right. You can only do one thing at a time, basically. So just make sure you're doing the right thing at the right time. It's always much easier to talk about leadership than it is to actually do it, I find. Very <laughs> you know. um, in terms of your role as a leader, I mean, obviously, it's been a very challenging 12 to 18 months for everyone. What, what's, what's, what's the health crisis meant for you and your work and your colleagues?
1: Um, it's so crazy because I've been in the CEO role for nine months and to be in a new CEO role, for the first time during a global pandemic um, is quite, and also the first Indigenous CEO um, is change with a capital C to everything. Things are changing. We're switching our line, our, our mode of delivery due to COVID. Um, we, people are open to doing things in a new way. How can I use that with also being the first Indigenous CEO of an organisation as well? It's because we do not want staff... Um, and our stakeholders and our participants to get change fatigue where we're constantly switching and switching and switching and switching, where we can think about if we are going to do some substantial change, let's try and get it done in the first 18 months. And not to say that everything is set in stone from then, but that's what COVID has presented us with. It's presented us with an environment to 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 kind of review everything and really question what are the things that that are the secrets to our success that we can never change, and what is the stuff that that we might not need after all? Um, and and that's such an exciting organization, uh, a conversation to have as an organization because we need to be having it anyway because of COVID. So to be wedging a few other things in there at the same time is is really efficient, um, and just really holistic, a really holistic way of thinking about the current health crisis. So I do have a bit of a positive spin on it. I mean, it hasn't been hasn't been easy, but um, but I think having that line of sight to the opportunity during times when um, things are challenging is, is what gets you through. Mm, yeah.
0: I mean, I often, I've I'll always thought about it as well, you know, in terms of, Having met lots of, uh, and interviewed lots of older CEOs, you know, more mature CEOs, should I say, been longer in the market, you know, they always point back to the very specific uh, experiences they had, particularly of economic crisis, sometimes political crisis, but mainly economic crisis and how they got through it. So I do think, and, and I, I don't wish crisis on people, and you know, the pandemic's had a terrible impact on people's mental health and the whole globe. But at the same time, it, it, it's, a, it's something to experience. You know what I mean? As a leader, I think about, you know, how you work in those kind of turbulent times.
1: Yeah, no that that's exactly right. And um and it's one of those things that you can reflect on later on down the track. Um but to be in it because this because this health health crisis has been going for so long, um it's not we, we don't really have that excuse of saying oh, it just happened so quickly and then you know benefit of hindsight and all that. It's been over a year now. Um we've had the in, in that sense the time to kind of reflect and plan um has kind of been in, in that sense it's, it's been good rather than it all just happened so quickly and we didn't get a chance and we probably could have done A, B and C. Um, so I, you know I think silver lining the silver lining to that time is that we can really think things through properly.
0: So thank you for joining me to hear from Layla. This episode was produced by the ever-excellent Alison Ho. Now, I want to say thank you all for listening because that is it for season three. And unfortunately, that's it for me as well. It's been a real pleasure and a privilege to host this show for Women's Agenda, which is a publication that I really love. It's so interesting to talk to so many different types of women about leadership and to hear their stories. And I actually like doing these kind of interviews because I find that I just learn so much from each and every one of them. So it's been my pleasure and privilege to be the host and i'm sure your next host of this show is going to be equally excellent so if you're not already then make sure you're subscribing to us on your favorite podcast player so that you don't miss us when we come back for season four or keep an eye out on womensagenda.com.au, and that's it for now thank you
1: Women's Agenda is proud to partner with Salesforce on this podcast series. As the world's leading CRM, Salesforce continues to be a different kind of Fortune 500 company, one that cares and gives back to the community, yet innovates like a startup. Equality is a core value at Salesforce and as a business, believes that its higher purpose is to drive equality for all. For more, visit salesforce.com.